Before we begin, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors at Audible. Now that the weather's getting nicer, I'm back to reading and listening to books in the park. And with Audible, it's never been easier. Every month, I get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. In addition, I get access to news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. If you go to audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast, you'll get two free audiobooks on us. Download thousands of titles offline anytime, anywhere. Having trouble deciding what to pick? Audible lets you keep your credits for up to a year. Find your summer read and support your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Okay, gentlemen. I want to know a scene in a film that was so haunting or disturbing to you that it's stuck with you ever since. Uh, well, this one's pretty easy for me, and it's, uh, you know, it doesn't even come from a horror movie, which is surprising. It comes from Saving Private Ryan, fitting for this episode we're about to have. It's the scene where Adam Goldberg's character, Mellish, is killed at the end with the, uh, when the, the Nazi slowly, very slowly stabs him through the heart. And Mellish is watching the whole time in agony and pain, and it is rough. It is not fun. The complete opposite of glorified war violence and does not uh, leave my brain at all. Hasn't, hasn't been away from my brain since I saw it. Oh, oh, definitely over 20 years ago. I definitely saw it on pay-per-view and VHS. So yeah, over 20 years ago. And uh, thanks, Steve, for doing that to me. For me, um, I don't mean to bring the the mood down uh, in in a way even more, but um, the one that sticks with me now is uh, Claude Lonsman's Shoah. With with what Claude Lonsman did with Shoah, which I think is so remarkable, is of course, as people may know, he doesn't he he doesn't use any archival footage. He he doesn't use any pictures of the past or anything like that. His film only uses um, witness accounts as spoken uh, many times in the, the places where these horrors took place. And there's a moment where a man is standing in a beautiful green open field. And I think you can see some people like just enjoying the, 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 the park in the background as he describes the atrocities that he witnessed committed against his family that he was there for. And the reason I, I think that that really sticks out to me more so than anything is just the fact that there's nothing inherently horrifying about the image. It's not showing you anything to upset you. Instead, it's begging you to ask what ordinary, perhaps beautiful scenery in your life has witnessed nightmares. And that no area is is safe from the evils of man. So uh, that that really hits me. Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, fan favorite and Action for Everyone co-host Vice Victus returns to offer his perspective on 1930s All Quiet on the Western Front. 
Our guest today is a returning friend of ours, a writer and a, and a, and a really uh, gifted thinker when it comes to film, and particularly films that deal with war and veterans' issues. Vice Victus, thank you so much for uh, joining us again. Hello, everyone. Uh, good to just to say, you know, it's been a while since I spoke talk to any of you guys. You know, it's been a long time. <laughs> you know, it's been a rough couple, of, you know, months last year. But uh, just you know, so it's good that we're still still here. We're still kicking. We're we're entering year three of a pandemic, so yeah, we haven't seen each other. We haven't seen you in person in quite some time, there, buddy. The yeah. the ever punctual Vice Victus. Listen, listen. Tom is late for everything and and late doing everything. So this year. He was not the reason it took so long for us to get season two going, and he's been riding that victory lap for a while, and now he's <laughs> yeah. going to clown on you for the same thing, that he was here first. <laughs> well, you know, like, uh, I guess the important thing is that we uh, use our time to its fullest, <laughs> as we'll discuss later on in this. In this yeah, well, <laughs> oh, that we do. That we do. You uh, joined us on our uh, our first season. Uh, you were one of the first guests we had, which we really appreciated, and... Uh, you were on for a movie called The Best Years of Our Lives, dealt with uh, the story of the fictional story of three veterans coming home from World War II. Uh, I can tell you it's a fan favorite episode and, and remains to this day one of our most popular episodes. Keeps getting new listeners. So folks are thoroughly enjoying that one. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. It was, it was a fun, some of you fun being there. And, uh, you know, and also, as obviously, a great movie, too. So that's good. And and uh, as the ironic juxtaposition of the title with the content of said movie, you could also say we're living in the best years of our lives, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Tip your waitresses. And so that was great. And you brought a lot to that, you know, uh, for listeners who uh, who maybe didn't hear you last time or aren't familiar with your work. You are uh, a veteran yourself and also a, a film writer and film podcaster now. And uh, you every year have done a, a great piece where you talk about uh, the the many war films that come out each year. Uh, this year, I think, was the first time that it was an audio version of that series, right? That's right. Yeah. Yes. So uh, the, the the article itself does take a lot of take a lot out of me, both time and and effort wise, of course. And also, you know, it's a pretty uh, daunting emotional experience. Um. So, but so this new version that all oh, this new iteration of it recording was uh, I, I, with the fact that I'm doing more and more podcasts in general kind of uh, getting my bearings in it it's kind of uh, this is a, it was just like a good good change of place a good way to try something else and, um, it was yeah I had a good audience response as well and I'll, I'll probably uh, do that again uh, this next year so yeah it was good a little bit and so you you know looked at the war films of 2021 and previously 2018 uh, 2019 2018 and so on uh and so we figured this was a great opportunity for you to look at the uh, quintessential war film of 1930, which is why you are here today talking about Best Picture winner All Quiet on the Western Front. I think, um, well, I'll say from the previous movie, one of the things that was fascinating to find was um, how so much of it is unfortunately still relevant um, and, and relatable. The experiences oh, yeah. of the soldiers coming, coming back and um, how are we doing now, uh, both... I mean, well, I, I speak from the American perspective, being a U.S. soldier, but you know, I, I'm sure uh, various other nations in this so-called global war on terror, and their citizens, their soldiers, have experienced um, this in, in various forms. Although, like as we always, as I've said, you know, throughout the years, other perspectives still are still are difficult to find, uh, particularly you know, like the 
the people whose nations are being uh, destroyed by war. Those are hard to come by, but nonetheless, the, the point being that uh, it's still, unfortunately, a universal experience. Uh, and I think uh, now, and this is actually why it's great. I'm, I'm glad you guys exist as a podcast, as a ongoing series, because uh, this is my my first time seeing uh, All Quiet Western Front uh, for this show. And once again, it rings true where uh, the experiences and the uh, and the situations are all too relatable. Um, but yeah, but it's but also even though that's unfortunate and tragic, I, it is like the previous films. There's a strange um, kinship or camaraderie, I guess, um, maybe in a more philosophical sense of having this shared experience with soldiers throughout time, history, and beyond our borders, beyond nations. It's a pretty uh, hmm, pretty profound feeling, I, I think, to know that uh, we have. We, that shared experience, um, yeah, and like I said, like I said, it is ultimately a tragic thing, but at least you know, and as this part of this film will show, as we, as we discuss, that uh, the kindred bond of humans, you know, that's we that's always necessary. We have to have that. Well, yeah, I mean, when, but we'll get into it more. Obviously, Mike's gonna do the little intro about what the uh, the. I mean, just. I'm acknowledging the format, guys. Um, <laughs> but um, before he gets to what the the registry itself says about the movie, I, I just want to say, watching this one, you know, not to say that your perspective on uh, best years of our lives wasn't, you know, very, you know, attuned and very, you know, well earned through the life you've led. I, I really watching this one. I felt like you were going to have something a deeper connection to this because, like you said. Um, not much has changed and a thought that kind of just came into my mind. I haven't served. So I, 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 you know, I, my, my perspective could be all wrong, but this felt very honest and authentic to the experience of being a soldier. And that if there's anything you could kind of say in like a log line, one sentence way to sum up this movie is that time may change, but the army doesn't. Yeah. So I'm very excited to dig into this with you. Yeah. Yeah. Same. So as Tom noted, uh, before we get into what we thought of the film, uh, let's talk about what the registry had to say. This faithful adaptation of Eric Maria Remarque's classic pacifist novel is among the greatest anti-war films ever made, remaining powerful more than 80 years later thanks to Lewis Milestone's inventive direction. Told from the perspective of a sensitive young German soldier, Lou Ayers, during World War I, recruited by a hawkish professor advocating glory for the fatherland, the young soldier comes under the protective wing of an old veteran, Louis Wolheim, who teaches him how to survive the horrors of war. The film is emotionally draining and so realistic that it will be forever etched in the minds of any viewer. Milestone's direction is frequently inspired, notably during the battle scenes. In one such scene, the camera serves as a kind of machine gun, gunning down the oncoming troops as it glides along the trenches. Universal spared no expense during production converting more than 20 acres of a large California ranch into battlefields occupied by more than 2,000 ex-servicemen extras. After its initial release, some foreign countries refused to run the film. Poland banned it for being pro-German, while the Nazis labeled it anti-German. Joseph Goebbels, later propaganda minister, publicly denounced the film. It received an Academy Award for Best Picture, and Milestone was honored as Best Director. So... You know, uh, you win Best Picture and the Nazis hate your movie. That's a, I think a double win there, right? 
dee, doesn't dee, help dee. Uh, your studio's look by uh, editing the movie down to get it played in Germany to make some of that sweet, sweet Nazi bucks. <laughs> but, you know, movies were built on the backs of uh, monsters and assholes, so what are you going to do about oh, it? Oh, trust me, we can. I have a whole paragraph here in my notes about the... Uh, <laughs> The German reaction. Um, well, also, it's good to know that even back in 1930, people were such, uh, you know, partisan assholes that they could see something and say, oh, that's anti-us. And it's both sides saying it. And you have to go, one of you guys is wrong. Do you want to <laughs> dig into that? Quite frankly, in, in this film, both are in the sense of like the entire thing with this movie that I think makes it so interesting. You know, and I wanted to start off talking about this, that. There's a common quote. Uh, before we started recording, Tom and I were talking about all of these sort of cliches and film thoughts that we all swallow as fact, right? Yeah. The conventional yeah. wisdom of film history that we kind of believe and, like, gets repeated so much. And then, like, everybody on film Twitter and, and in the film world just kind of takes it as gospel, even though it's not true. The same way that, like, you know, whenever anybody talks about... Like, we always, you know, D.W. Griffith being held up as the father of cinema, even though he didn't actually invent anything, right? And we can now find older films that did it first. Uh, you know, the fact that we can find films by Lois Weber or Oscar Michaud, the kind of show, like, this was never a medium that was just dudes, uh, just white dudes. That same way, we often talk about, and people love to cite that, um, that quote often attributed to Francois Truffaut, that says um, you can never make an anti-war film because uh, war on film inherently looks glorious, like you could never actually make an anti-war movie. One thing that strikes me about this film watching it is while I understand that that principle applies in a lot of cases, right, and that it's distinctly possible to watch plenty of movies that think they're anti-war or try to be anti-war and there will still be people gung-ho in the audience for it, right, you know, especially recently, like, my I will never forget going to see American Sniper in the theater and that tense scene where um, Bradley Cooper is trying to figure out whether the child is holding a bomb or not, basically whether to shoot this kid, and ultimately, you know, doesn't. Um, halfway through that scene, a guy in my audience just kept yelling, shoot him, Right. It was one of the most profoundly upsetting moments I've had at a cinema. So, you know, a lot of people think they're making anti-war movies and they're not. This is a movie that I think, and I don't know about you guys, but, like, there are a lot of battle scenes in it. Not a single one seems glorious. Not a single one seems viscerally exciting. No. They are all, I mean, in a way that I think almost nothing else has done, like, they are all just horrifying. Yeah, I mean... This, top to bottom, this movie's unpleasant. This movie's not saying, hey, this is this is like the complete opposite of Top Gun. This is not, <laughs> hey, the army's cool and you're going to get glistened up and you're going to slap ass with Val Kilmer. It's like, no, this sucks. This yeah. is not fun. Having to worry about carrying your friend onto your shoulder while the bombs are f dropping from above. Not cool. Yeah, Dealing with that... rats flooded in the little bunker you're hiding in. Not cool. Yeah. This just sucks. <laughs> so oh, um, before we continue, like uh, I stated in the previous episode, but in case people who don't know, listening now, so I'm not a combat. I was not a combat armed soldier. I was an intelligence analyst. So you know, mostly you know, like behind the desk stuff. And I was you know, total hobbit stuff. Um, but you know, my my case in this modern war is a little bit different because uh, I still you know 
I have my own uh, demons to deal with with that way. But you know, uh, I've also you know had constant direct fire attacks, that kind of stuff. Just you know, goes with the territory. So um, th- that being said, one of the um, things that this film does so powerfully, and I guess it does it powerfully by being understated, is uh, the sense that uh, well, there's a common saying that war is like uh, a year of boredom punctuated by like brief moments of absolute terror and so this film captures really well that uh that sense of banality and boringness and uh and just uh, the drudge of nothingness of, the, uh, of a void of not just life but a void of of, of existence that the war is well, as for as much time as you see a uh, footage of explosions or uh, uh advances in the trenches they're just sitting around you know stacking uh Slacking off or, or jaw-jacking or, you know, getting into like little stupid little adventures. Um, but that's, that's part of the experience. That's, that's a critical part of the experience too. This, uh, this life being wasted, wasted as in not just the life being lost, but this, how this, uh, these years of nothingness consume you until it's time to die or get injured or have to do some terrifying thing. That's, that's something that this film, gets tremendously well that, you know, is, is, as we'll say often, it's still true to this day and it has been true for, you know, as long as we've been in armed conflict as a species. One thing I think is interesting about this film is its setting. I mean, of course, uh, I say its setting. It's based on um, a, I think, undeniably classic canonical novel, right? I think that yeah. even if people haven't read All Quiet on the Western Front, it's one of those titles that everyone knows. I also think this is, you know, I read the book many years ago, so I don't remember all the details, but this film does, I think, a remarkable job of adapting it to the screen, and that means not having to hit every single story beat or do it in the exact same span of time, um, but make it work on screen. One thing it does that adapts very well is uh, it begins with the same opening epigraph as the novel. It just changes the word novel for story. Uh, it says, it begins with this quote, this story is to be neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all an adventure, for death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped shells, were destroyed by the war. That struck me in part because I think there's something about World War I and the aftermath of World War One that allows for a film to be so nakedly anti-war in a way that I think nothing else that comes after does. I think that movies set in, and maybe I'm wrong, and, and Vice, you can correct me here, but I feel like movies set in World War Two, no matter how graphic they are about the horrors of war, uh, you know, and we can talk about films or, or series like Band of Brothers or Saving Private Ryan that are exceptional films set in this time, nevertheless still carry with it um, both a sense of obligation to the greatest generation and the sacrifices they made, and also the political underside of it, which is, of course, when you're looking at this carnage going on in World War II, you sit back and go, yeah, well, you know, it was to stop the Nazis. And when we do Vietnam films, like A Platoon or An Apocalypse Now or A Deer Hunter, which can also show the horrors of war, the politics are still first and foremost because it's like, hey— why was the U.S. getting involved in this conflict? The thing that I find interesting about All Quiet on the Western Front 
is that there are no politics to it. There is not even the slightest attempt to discuss why World War One started or what they were quote unquote fighting for. It is, or even who was right or who was wrong. I mean, in in, in a sense, we're watching the Germans, who, in our understanding of World War One, were the villains. But this film, it, there's nothing about the politics or what they're fighting for. It is absent all that in the way that our understanding of World War One is in a lot of cases, absent the geopolitical reasonings behind it. And I think that that allows this to be a lot more blatantly anti the concept of war as opposed to a critique of any particular geopolitical conflict. I, I don't know what you think of that. but Well, I think uh, th so it's an interesting point where the characters, there is a, a conversation about this, but uh, like, so no one ever says, oh, if it wasn't for that, old Franz Ferdinand and, you know, that, you know, it's nothing like that, but they, uh, they, in a sense, uh, make fun of the absurdity of how any kind of geopolitical me mechanism is still pointless and, and fruitless. Yeah. Uh, there's a, the comes to like a, they're saying, they're sitting down uh, having, after having a meal and they say, uh, why are we here doing this? And when the soldier remarks, uh, well, one, one nation offends another, and one of those replies, oh, so I see this mountain over here in Germany offends this few in France, you know? So like, yeah. like, like the, the concept of, of offense and of, of, of nations, it's, they kind of lay bare that it's all, all, all poppycock as yeah. the term. Um, but then, you know, they, they do actually kind of in their own way dive deeper into this, into this conversation about, um, why they're all there. And in this case, in this conversation, the Germans, these soldiers state plainly that they had, they, don't care at all about the enemy or who these people are. They say, you know, I've never met an Englishman. They probably never, never met a German. And, you know, they care, they care nothing of the whys or the, the hows. They just know that uh, some powerful people, some powerful men are orchestrating this all and they have no say in this, unfortunately. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it is a kind of fatalistic, uh, you know, very dire, realization but you know they just they have to laugh it off because what else can they do but th at the same time i think it that them laughing it off through this story gives us the reader or the reader slash viewer the power to recognize that to, to be unafraid to say this is all nonsense um you know straight from the soldier's mouth in this case yeah i mean i just i i think that there's something about and especially the timing. I mean, consider this comes out in 1930. Um, a decade later, you would not be able to make a film like this. Not just yeah. because the war effort's ramping up, but also at this point, I think we were able to, in 1930, view the German people who were technically our quote-unquote enemies in World War One. I. I, I think, what, we kind of viewed the Germans then as like, well, these were just you know, poor schmoes like us, we were doing whatever Woodrow Wilson told us and they were doing whatever the Kaiser told them. And I don't know, that's that. I, I, whereas by the time you get to World War II, you are not able to have uh, any kind of sympathetic German character for sure. Uh, yeah. You know. that, that was something I definitely was kind of, I latched onto watching this movie, which is that, um, you know, the book comes out in 29. The movie comes out a year later. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure that, that prop, uh, a lot of this shit that's going on in Germany was probably on the author's mind at the time. 
and that informed his decision to set it uh, with German soldiers in this war. Uh, I'm also sure it's because, well, Germany loses the war, so it gives you the perspective of war sucks because somebody's got to lose and people are going to die for no reason in a war that they didn't win. But um, how time has kind of given it an extra layer of anti-war sentiment because we now know that what happens in this war is what gives a little a little fucking shit here like Hitler the fuel and the juice to turn an entire nation on the Jews and steal power and cause, I mean, the only justifiable war since the Civil War. I mean, the only war that isn't marked by politics or corporations looking to make money or just straight up lies and bullshit. Um, we now know that there is a domino effect from one war to another that we're now seeing that these guys, if not them, because most of these fucking guys die in this movie, but like their friends and their relatives or those little, I think maybe pointedly kind of Hitler youthish kids at the end when Paul goes back to class, mm-hmm. um, that this shit doesn't stop when the war is quote unquote over. That this is that war leaves lasting scars that that continue for generations. I mean, we're still dealing with you know the after effects of World War II because well, we didn't deal with it too well. We let the Nazis win a court case in the seventies, I mean, and we're, yeah, we're still dealing you know, with the after effects of World War One, quite frankly. But that's what I mean, like yeah. World War Two explicitly, but World War One in a more abstract way because it led to World War Two. Because let's be fucking real, we got Nazis in the in our government at this point in time, and you know I think it gives the movie an even more prophetic and humane and just salient point of view that this all fucking sucks and we keep acting like it's a natural thing to do, and it might be because humans are fucking nuts, but. There has to be a better way because what if we have another version of World War One where everyone's just pissed off at each other and then we fight, which then goes, then what the fuck is the next version of World War Two going to look like? I mean, there's also, I mean, the I'll say this, you know, the the scenes and there's so many to talk about and we will talk about them, but the the scenes of combat and the scenes in the battlefield and the trenches are all horrifying. But when I watched this the first time, the scenes that stuck with me are much smaller than the portion of the film that I remember, which are the scenes when he comes back home. Yes. And the thing that struck me, I mean, the moment that I remember, I mean, him in the classroom is incredible too, but when he's sitting there with those three old men, his father and the, the guys yeah. at the bar. Exactly. That scene fucking kicked me in the ass. He's sitting there with those three old men, and they just keep going like, well, if we push on through France, if we do this, and they're talking, and they're talking about glorious battle, and they're talking so confidently. And at first, you know, um, uh, Luares is, is thrown by that, and then when he tries to speak up and contradict what they're saying, they silence him. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I can't imagine, uh, you know, and I'm sure uh, I, I I speak for Vice when I say that uh, nothing probably feels worse than when a bunch of people who haven't been uh, to war speak on behalf of a veteran. I'm speaking for Vice when I say that. One of the uh, funnier uh, – just there being literal armchair generals. They actually yep. have a map sprawled out on this, uh, this bar table. And they're, kind of, they're, they're like 
like they're playing Risk. We should take this Flatland because it'd be easier, like you know, like as if they would know even a one iota of how it, what it takes to actually traverse advance forward on any combat field. So yeah, that was just funny. So like, I don't know if that that term existed before or after this this movie, this movie or this war, but it just again how these things kind of reverberate and and uh, say the same about these wars. And I mean, um, it's yeah. Oh, sorry, you were saying. No, no, no. Go ahead. No, I mean, it was something we talked about, actually, funny enough, on, on Dr. Strangelove. Um, but I talked about the one thing that's so interesting that we don't really do in America, but in Britain, particularly because of the way the military hierarchy is and the way that, like, you know, the rich society people end up with high positions in the military. There's this tradition of kind of uh, laughing at the ineptitude of the higher-ups and, like you said, the armchair generals and things like that and guys who basically have never seen combat standing over a map and going, oh, well, I see. We're going to blah, 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 blah. Um, and that scene just reminds me so much of that idea of... I mean, like, and hell, you don't even need to look at... you know, that scene. I mean, uh, for a film we'll cover next season, uh, a different movie in World War One. Think about the fact that at the same time this movie's going on, T.E. Lawrence is in, uh, you know, on his way to Aqaba, as the British generals who have never seen a desert are drawing lines on a map to create borders in the Middle East that we are still dealing with now. You know, Tom and I say it a lot when it comes to people who are taking up any kind of cause, political or, or otherwise, which is like theory isn't reality. And how many people we know who, uh, on on Twitter or otherwise like to talk a lot about how they actually know the solution to blank problem, despite having never been anywhere near that problem. Whether, I mean, we saw it earlier this year with, um, I mean, Lord knows, uh, this year, or, you know, la or last year, um, the United States pulled out of Afghanistan, um, where we'd only been for a little bit, right? Definitely didn't <laughs> overstay. But we pulled out of Afghanistan, and I'm not even talking about like, oh, well, how how this worked and the administration's choices, but rather like you just saw so many people who uh, did not know a gosh darn, could not even point to Afghanistan on a map, now sitting back and going, no, 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 here's how I would have done it. All right. Let me tell you, I know, I know what we should have done. Let me tell you how this would have worked. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, um, the movie or, or the story doesn't seem to get into this explicitly. Um, but the other part of that, the other side of that coin is the fact that even the generals and the politicians and the administrators with all this experience and knowledge and, and, uh, all the machinations, they still don't know what the fuck they're doing. Yeah. Like, like, you know, the fact that we were in the tw 20 years in Afghanistan with these, you know, and I, I've met with, worked with, briefed some of these. Generals, you know, and they're brilliant people, but even even having that that wealth of knowledge and resources doesn't mean shit, really. Uh, in, in in the face of again, the, you're just a raw absurdity that you're going to, in this case, bring democracy to Afghanistan. Like, not that. Or the issue in that case being that the concept as we know it, democracy, to this nation and its history, are totally incompatible. And I'm be careful when I say that. I don't mean that um, the people don't aren't owed or deserve freedom, but just again, like culturally and hist and historically, the concepts we are thinking about are so different that even again, with all the knowledge and the foresight and the wealth, the treasure of, of, of empires. 
it's still doomed to fail because you don't have that basic understanding. Yeah, it's – I mean, so to talk about the film a bit more, you know, moment by moment because it is – it is a remarkable thing, and not just because um, because of its message. Because one of the things, there's a lot of movies that are anti-war movies. I was looking at one that was um, was a film that ended up repurposing footage from All Quiet on the Western Front. Because footage from this film ends up being re-edited into other movies twice. Does anybody know either film that footage from this gets reused in? No. No. One is a, a film called No Greater Glory, which is from 1934, and it uses a metaphor to convey the horrors of war, where it's about a bunch of young boys um, who fight over a vacant lot and end up taking on the role of generals and military stuff, and then one little boy actually gets killed, and it's like, ah, you see, this is an analogy for war, and they reuse footage from All Quiet on the Western Front at the start. Um, just as a note, the other movie that reuses footage is uh, called Boobs in Arms. <laughs> Who wants to guess what Boobs in Arms is? That's right, a Three Stooges short. Wow. We all thought that, right? That's what it was? So it's a, a 1940 yes. Three Stooges short where the Stooges end up uh, enlisting in the military to escape a man that they were trying to cuckold, but it turns out that man is their superior officer. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh shit, that's fucking hilarious. <laughs> oh, these, <laughs> these stooges, man. Tell you <laughs> genius. <laughs> they should, uh, they should be running armies. They should be running these, 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 these battles, fields of war, not the generals. <laughs> um, by the way, that short, which I watched earlier this morning, also ends with them riding a bomb, which inspired Dr. Strangelove, possibly. Uh. Very <laughs> weird. But anyway, like a lot of those films that are anti war, you know, um, tend to use analogies, right? They tend to be, oh well, we'll we'll you know we'll it'll be a cartoon and it'll show flowers dying in a garden and that'll be an analogy for a war or well it'll be two men fighting in over a, uh, over their backyard and that'll be an analogy for war. Whereas this movie is just from the get go up front, like confronting the matter head on, and up to you know it would have been easy for them to do kind of. I think what a lot of anti-war movies do, which is uh, like either start when they're already at war or focus on one character who's like a real drifter type. You know, I feel like that happens a lot uh, in a platoon or what have you, where it's like, well, this guy wasn't doing anything else with his life. And actually, whereas this I thought was so interesting is that first off, you have that incredible tracking shot that moves from the house along the parade through the window of the classroom. Which is the yeah. kind of thing, it's such an ambitious shot. And, um, you know, like Tom and I were talking before we were recording about these things we internalize. And, like, people always talk about how the early talkies, the early sound movies, did not have any of the stylistic flair of silent movies. And this just proves that's not true. Because mm. this movie is so gorgeously shot and has so many unique um, shot choices and camera movements despite also having to record sound. But then we begin in a classroom. And here's a classroom full of kids, and it never tells you, like, oh, they're, they're the poor kids, or they're this or they're that. No, these are just regular students, you know, who have an education on And their professor is there telling them 
you know, he's basically talking about the glory of battle, the glory of going to war, and he has that line about, well, I'm not going to tell you to sign up to fight for the fatherland, but a real man and all that. And that, I thought, was such a striking start, especially because the novel starts in the battlefield and then does flashbacks to how he joined. I thought starting it here with that just blindly patriotic speech, I thought was such an interesting choice. What do you guys think about the classroom? Oh, the classroom was great. I mean, we still see, we're still seeing that shit of fucking bloviating assholes sitting in front of a table or a screen or whatever saying, yeah, real men fight, go fight. Uh, you know, we saw it last year on January 6th. No, no, you know, no big deal. It's telling people to do, you know, fight for your freedoms and do all this. And then they run their fucking dripping pussies all the way back to their little fucking penthouses <laughs> and let everybody else get in fucking trouble. And, you know, we got guys doing the same thing while they're saying, you know, rainwater's turning frogs gays or some shit. Or, you know, Joe Rogan's telling people that, you know. That hamburger's got to be, must be made from pork because ham's in the table the- <laughs> before he fucking bursts like the overstuffed sausage he is. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I mean, it's it's great. And I mean, it's made even better by the end where Paul sees exactly like, oh, it's happening again. And I I now know what it's like. And I now know that this old fuck doesn't even know what the hell he's talking about because if he'd ever been in war, he wouldn't be throwing fucking 16 year old kids into the meat grinder with such you know with such verve and saying yes do it for for a war that nobody can really explain and and for a war that's just the guy sitting in holes where bombs are just dropping on their heads like 10 feet above them and they're just like are we doing anything today no they're just gonna keep bombing us for the next you know six days okay and yeah uh, yeah, I think, I think the point you bring up about uh, how the, the novel being written and the movie being made, in that uh, what are the what is this called? The um, is it the Weimar period? Is that is this the right time frame? The, the the Weimar Republic, yeah. Right, yeah. So you know, having that in the background, I feel I think you're right. It does really speak to probably um, that development of the story, and I think that that scene, the addition of that part in the film, really speaks to that as well. It's also kind of it's making that context of how and why a nation would be in such a um, fewer, pardon the term, uh, to to join the war, but also and, and you know and we've of course we've seen that through our history and most recently just the, the the rally to join you know the fight the global war on terror after nine eleven. The story isn't about this specifically, but there is this um I don't know. I'll say misconception, and maybe I'll get some heat for that, about how the military preys on the poor or the disadvantaged to, to have people go fight. And that most certainly is true. That does happen. But uh, there's been several um, uh, demographic uh, studies about this and, and published by the DOD itself and the Army, and, and which kind of show that in reality, quite a substantially larger portion of quote-unquote middle-class and educated, college educated, or people uh, education sign up just just as frequently as those who have uh, more disadvantage with either no education or no um no no employment. So while this story doesn't say that explicitly, it does show that you know these well educated young men with plenty to live for. Um, the, the, the circumstances is a bit different here, but nonetheless, 
it's easy to see how anybody can can be uh, uh, manipulated and lured uh, by the, by this uh, rally to war, rally to join, and it's, and it's regardless of your uh, mental capabilities or your your status, you know, it, it'll get you all at some point. Yeah, I mean, because you know these kids, you know, they're in college. They're you know apparently very smart kids. They're you know, college wasn't like it is today where you have to be forced to go into debt for the rest of your life. You could just do it if you could only do it if, like, you wanted to. And you'd be fine if you didn't. But these kids are being told by a teacher they love and trust. It's great. War's great. It's going to make your fucking dick two feet long. And you're going to get fucking <laughs> pussy until the day you die. And you'll yeah. live till you're 130. And, you yeah. know, the the seas will part for you. And well, they're like, fuck yeah. But there's also, there's more to that that I think is very interesting in terms of uh, the timing of this film. Now, obviously, um, you know, Hitler has not taken power in Germany yet, right? Um, no. You know, uh, that that has not explicitly occurred yet, but he does exist as a presence, right? Yes. Uh, you know, I mean, I, and it's it because he doesn't. I mean, there's, there's the 1932 election with the where Hitler is actually appointed, but. Um, but it, that hasn't, you know, that hasn't occurred yet, and yet the nationalism that he and the Nazi Party represent is on the rise. And I thought there was something very interesting about when the teacher is speaking, the camera angles they use, and the way that he speaks—that very, you know, the the cadence of his speeches does feel like something out of a Lenny Riefenstahl film, right? It does yeah. feel like something out of Triumph of the Will, which would come along five years later. Uh, fun fact, by the way, for anyone who didn't know this, I learned this looking this up. Lenny Riefenstahl somehow lived till 2003. Yeah. Was yeah, still she, kicking in the new millennium. Yeah, she's that what? bitch got to see the towers go down. It's <laughs> truly, like, absolutely, it is, it is just, I don't know. It's she literally I, got to see everybody forget she was one of the worst people to ever live, and then everybody right. turned on the brown folk. <laughs> that's the thing. That's, that's the thing that's truly throwing me though. Is like we live in a time where people uh, call directors war criminals as a hyperbolic joke, and in all the way through to two thousand three, there was a director who was a literal war criminal. Uh, anyway, yeah. I Nick Jagger hung out with her. It's it's so <laughs> weird. It's 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 so bizarre. Um, but in any event. And the reason I say that is is that you do feel this echo in that of like, obviously, you know, it's not necessarily Hitler in the same way that like, I I don't know I I think about something like and I hate to evoke this film, but like there is a lot when you watch you know uh, Joker post January sixth, and like I feel like well no because there's this thing of like. You know, future generations sometimes conflate when things happen. It would be very easy to watch this movie and think like, oh, this was made in response to Hitler. And it's like, well, no, he hadn't taken power yet. But it's the same way that, like, when you watch Joker post-January 6th, you're like, you know, when you have to explain, you're like, yeah, he didn't necessarily know this was happening. Or, like, Halloween Kills has a lot of January 6th imagery, imagery despite being made well before it. Because there's just this thing of, like, it was in the air. It was in the atmosphere. Yeah. We all felt it. And I think that this film, and particularly the novel, but, like, the film is a reflection of, like, a feeling of almost, hey, everybody, we were all on the same page right after World War One. that, holy shit, let's never let that happen again. And it's feeling like we're gearing up to let that happen again. 
So yeah. let's remember how bad that was. You know? Yeah. Yeah, pretty crazy how Blumhouse did it twice with Halloween Kills and The Purge. Uh, yeah. The, pur- the Forever Purge. And, <laughs> but uh, it, yeah. and there, there, there were a lot of fucking idiots that were like, oh my god, can you believe they tried to capitalize it? No, no, do some research. Um, also, before we move on, gotta make a quick joke. Do you think Lenny Riefenstahl told Mick Jagger that she didn't like the song Brown Sugar because she just doesn't like anything with color in it? <laughs> I don't know if the uh, FCC... Uh, uh, adjudicates podcast, but again, this is gonna be a great one. I hope somebody hears this. Shit. <laughs> God damn it! But so there is something, you know. I I also thought there was something incredible about. There's a moment that uh, when our main character is imagining going home, uh, having enlisted, while the teacher is still speaking, we get this image of him coming home in the uniform, the mom crying, the father looking proud. And one thing that struck me about that is because this is so close to silent filmmaking's era, it's the kind of camera, it's the kind of trick like doing this, you know, having the voiceover bleed into the next scene and then return back. It's the kind of technique I don't see a lot in, you know, the, the later 30s, things like that. I think it was something about like he's the thing that makes this film impressive on a technical standpoint, I think, is that Lewis Milestone is still using techniques from the silent era and also incorporating sound as opposed yeah. to so many filmmakers from that time that sort of went, oh, we can use microphones now? Chuck the rest out. Like, just all the techniques. Fuck it. The big thing is dialogue. Whereas this, I think, I mean, there's some incredible angles and some incredible shots that I feel like you would only see in a silent film. In fact, there is a silent version of this film. Well, um, yeah, that's that is something I did want to talk about. And since you brought it up, um, they shot you know with two cameras at the same time, which is pretty fucking crazy. One silent, one with sig sound uh, capabilities, and uh, yeah, all that shit was only possible. And like you were saying before, the the great looking you know visuals and the crazy camera work and all was because Universal put a lot of fucking money into this movie when the Great Depression hit. A year before, they took a big fucking risk on this movie, and it uh, paid off pretty well. But good lord, were they could they have almost eaten a giant heaping of shit if this thing didn't even do half as well as it did? Um, and it, you also, know, it notched up uh, uh, the first best picture win for Universal. But that's yeah, like that's what I mean. It made a lot of money. It fucking won best picture. Can you imagine a fucking modern studio today giving? This book, like literally this book, I'm not even going to make a comparison to another piece of content, but this fucking book, this blatantly anti, you know, imperialism, anti-war, all this, and it ends as fucking miserably as it does. Imagine giving them a James Cameron sized budget and saying, do whatever the fuck you want. Shoot it twice. Use three different cameras so it could be, you know, 3D and fucking 4D and this and that. And we're going to bomb. And, and then it makes you know, the last duel kind of money. That's what would have happened. It would make negative money. We would get a check in the mail <laughs> to, to, to tell us to stay home and not watch the fucking movie. Well, it's be- I think in part because, I mean, look, partisanship has always existed uh, in this country. Yeah. Um, but the one thing you get is because World War One has such complicated geopolitics, I do think that there was a sense 
largely across the board in the United States of whether you were Democrat or Republican, whether you were conservative or liberal or socialist or whatever, the one thing everybody was on the same page on in the aftermath of World War One was that can't happen again. That sucked. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, absolutely. Because it's not too dissimilar in terms of the war itself from Vietnam, which is just like, why is this happening? But Vietnam was partisan straight to hell. So like you like people would still get mad about like platoon and be like, how dare you talk shit about Vietnam? We had to stop the commies. And it's like the commies still fucking won, you dipshit. Why are you fucking well, praising a war we but lost? Also, I mean, but also conversely, I think there's also an element of with particularly World War One. I, I mean, if and also the element setting aside World War One, there's something about during that period of of World War One. There's there the idea of war. War was not inherited in the same way, right? I mm-hmm. mean, you know, te- we had had previously this, you know, the um, I was about to say Spanish American. That's later. Um, but we had right, yeah. But we no, we I mean, we had had the Civil War things like that. But but now, the idea of having served, like you know, we know people whose families have like the generations of, well, this one served in World War Two, and then this one served in Korea and Vietnam, and now this one served in Iraq, and then his son also served in Iraq. You know, we have that like that that trickle down thing, and and there's that sense of pride that comes with that, and I think that this. World War One was such a change. I mean, when they called it the war to end all wars, right? They called it the yeah. Great War. Um, and because of the horrors that these people saw, and, I mean, even the film itself, this film we're talking about, uh, there's a quote that said that this film should be shown to every person uh, every year until the word war is out of the dictionary. Uh, and I think part of that is the fact that you, you, Tom, you evoked Platoon. I'm sure we could all talk about plenty of, of films that are supposedly anti-war, critical of war. But the reason that true foe quote rings so true for people is that there's still the combat is still filmed with a sense of valor, and there's still a sense of who's wrong and who's right. And one thing I think is so compelling about this film, too, is, one, there's no sense of who's wrong or right. Right, We're on the side of the Germans, technically the bad guys in the way that we frame world war one but we also don't really have any sense of who's right or who's wrong or anything but also there's no glamour to any of this i mean the thing that strikes me is when we finally get uh to the trenches um not to glaze too far over i mean you you do have that that whole sequence in the boot camp that clearly was uh an influence on full metal jacket uh, oh, yeah. And where the where the guy who was like the little twerp in town now has power, but when you actually get out to the battlefield, I mean the the screaming is oh, yeah. is just it it doesn't it's... sound like any movie would let men scream now. It sounds like pigs being slaughtered. It sounds like children. It's horrifying. I mean, it's the thing. I think it's like the thing you're saying. It's it's taking a lot from silent films, and silent films ha- were great at, at evoking a sort of nightmarish quality in them. Uh, you know, there was a lot of great horror in the silent era, and I wouldn't be, you know, surprised if there was some German expressionism stuff uh, taken for this. Um, I, I do think a lot uh, of this does kind of have to do um, that this is a pre-code movie, and that... Just barely, um, though, but we'll talk about that. Just barely, but it wasn't really... 
an enforced thing at this point. Like, it kind of existed, but no one cared until, like, 33, 34. So they can make something this miserable and bleak and, you know, kind of anti-patriotic. Because pretty much after this, you're going to only get propaganda movies for a long time. You know, John John Wayne, you know, doing, you know, his ridiculous war movies or, you know... We're going to drag Audie Murphy and make him relive one of the worst, you know, experiences of his life on film. Great. That must have been good for his his mind. Uh, th- this feels like uh, an almost a right place at the right time kind of fucking thing, you know? Yeah. Now, um, oh, yeah, you were about to speak, Vince, please. Oh, no. Well, I just, um, I don't know. I, I haven't, you know, we haven't, we haven't talked about the outline of where we're going with this. But um, one thing I, I feel like maybe... I'll get to it now because I don't want to miss it out. The uh, we're talking about you know this as an anti-war film and one of the one of the great ones for history. And something that struck me as I'm finally watching this for well, for the first time is um, you, yeah, using all those techniques you mentioned the silent the silent stuff and um, the the transitions. Um, and oh, and I should say I should say I, unfortunately I haven't read the novel version, so I don't know. Uh, I'm not familiar with the. Uh, nuances or of this of the text as written but the film as it comes across i think maybe more than being anti-war it's pro-human like um there's a lot of very overt yes like um like again as you said we don't even think about them as german and, and i guess to the credit of well by the nature of the film being an american production it kind of forces that um that uh familiarization of yeah. these, these just people, but even then, like there's several, there's several parts where you know the main character, uh, he fights a Frenchman and an Englishman, and you know this, the, the both the interactions between combatants and even comrades is very similar in that. Even in, in the like at one point he um he has to stab somebody in a trench, and the, the soldier later he dies eventually, but he's so full of remorse and regret for what he's done. And even though he, at the same time, he yes, he knows and says aloud, they were forced, they had to do this. This is part of their job. But he, and it's just, it's just, it's the same. Um, when they go to visit, they, uh, oh, I think it's in a earlier, in an earlier incident, one of their friends is wounded and he has his leg emptied. So they go to visit him, and some of the soldiers are kind of, you know, this, they're, they're just, they're half, they're half empathizing with him. But the main character, he's like, there's so much to live for. Please, you know, please don't give up hope. And he means it. And I think that, you know, and I guess this is like, this is the core of the character that he is kind of representing this, uh, the fire of humanity that, that, that refuses to get snuffed out, even with all this horror and tragedy, even after everything he's done, you know, he still has it in him. Even, you know, when he is part where he comes home and sees the, sees the folly of war, he's still, it's still within him to speak out against it because that's still his humanity is so strong. He believes that he, not that he's going to save this, these future kids, but he needs to like, let them know it's upon him to not let them know it's real. So yeah, that, I think that's um, maybe something that, well, like like Tommy just mentioned you know, about, about how films after this would be you know mostly propaganda or have you know have specific agendas, but a lot of them and you know even though they'll have these. Um, Really harrowing moments in them. This uh, all quiet, in particular, has a sense of humanism that, even in the more 
even in the more uh, well-known or, uh, you know, all the well-known, awarded, critically acclaimed ones are kind of missing, honestly. Um, you know, like, you know, we mentioned like the tune and stuff or stuff, you know, like there's a thing, you know, you know uh, rape as a weapon or, you know, killing kids, all this stuff on paper or in, in the text, it's harrowing stuff, but it's just more, it's so few films get that sense of why we must care for the humanity at all. Other, like the difference between this is bad and this is why we must prevail. And I think that all quiet has that very distinct thing of this is why we must prevail above all else that few Absolutely. things could. Well, I think, you know, one of the big, the best uh, examples of that is again, a thing that would throw people for a loop of what could happen in a 1930s movie is, is when Paul takes a, uh, takes one of those French girls in, into a barn and, you know, gives her the business. Um, <laughs> and uh, as explicit as I could, I assume they could get back then, but it's, it's still very like, you know, not explicit, but it's also like, oh yeah, he, he banged her. And it's like a one brief moment of respite in this just horrible thing for him. That's like, maybe there is uh, a little bit of, you know, goodness to live for, and we need to try to be better than this. Um, which also Alec reminded me of the thing I lost track of is that we don't even see the quote unquote enemy until Paul stabs the guy in the gut yep. in, um, in the foxhole, which, uh, I have to assume Nolan took as a, as an idea in Dunkirk, um, mm -hmm. to make it not so much we're vilifying, you know, the Germans or whatever. Uh, we, like we all know the Germans are the bad guys in world war two, but like we're focusing on you know, what it's like being trapped and what it's like being under constant bombardment, which is, again, a kind of thing that this movie's doing, that we just see them constantly under bombardment. And it's like, well, who the fuck is shooting at us? We don't even know what's going on, um, which adds to the anti-war thing. But yeah, it's the anti, the, the not the anti-human, the pro-human thing is, I think, like Alex said, one of the, the strongest things, because you, you also see it in um, the interactions with the group about how tight they become and how much it really is all about protecting each other at this point because you know the higher ups aren't really going to do it and we get the sense at home that everyone just thinks we're tools and nobody really cares that they're throwing us into you know hellfire for fucking land nobody even gives a shit about um you know the fucking yeah, heart-wrenching ending where he's bringing cat you know cat gets a you know some shrapnel in his knee and he's trying to carry him back and he fucking dies and you're like oh come on man like we well, love this guy and yet you know what i think is so great about that and um the film the movie is not you know i i agree you know there's the there's the humanism of it it's also very cyclical you know i mean the most obviously the most obvious parallels of course starting in the classroom and then lou air is returning to the classroom but especially watching this the second time or knowing the book or anything like that, one thing that's very striking is essentially the first piece of advice that Cat gives anyone is one of the guys runs out. Uh, you know, one he run, it leaves the foxhole to bring back in a friend of his that got shot, right? And you have mm -hmm. that exchange where Cat goes, you know, why'd you risk your life bringing him in? Well, it's babies, my friend. It's a corpse. Don't you ever do that again, right? And in the moment, that just feels blunt it just feels like oh 
I'm another guy hardened by war, and I'm telling you not to care, right? And I was thinking about, like, so many movies that we see now do so much about, like, you know, they do the heroic scenes, right? Where that where our main character goes, I don't care, I'm going back for him! And then he carries him back, and it was like, nobody believed you, but you did it! Ah, Right? That type of shit. Like, this year, another World War One movie this year that is not nearly as good, The King's Man does a whole bit with that, <laughs> right? Where it's like, oh, it's because he's so heroic, he's willing to do that. Then you see this, and at first you brush back against what Kat's saying, right? Where you're like, well, no, but uh, oh, look how war robs you of your humanity. And then when you see how Kat winds up and you realize he wasn't just giving advice, he was foreshadowing. And basically, you know, without knowing it, he was trying to advise him like, no, it's not worth another person dying. And like, no, it's not. He was basically, you know, an hour ahead of time. Plus, telling Lou Ayres, like, don't risk your life for me. He Cat dies the same way he starts out advising them not to risk their lives over, you know? Which I think is, yeah. is pretty remarkable. And the cyclical stuff comes back in little ways, too. I mean, uh, uh, Vice, you mentioned uh, the soldier having his leg amputated, right? When they go to visit him, which also ends up being echoed later uh, in, uh, they do a very similar scene in in um, King's Row, which is the uh, I, Ronald Reagan's best movie, um, <laughs> where he's got this uh, moment where he uh, he's he wakes up and finds out his legs were taken and just yells, "Where's the rest of me?" Yeah. Um, which he ended up making uh, the title of his memoir after he got diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So you know, solid <laughs> solid gag there, Ron. Uh, anyway, Ron, piece of shit, burning. Um, <laughs> he did. He did. He, yeah, but but so anyway. Oh, well, wait, wait. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I want to. I want to build off a point you mentioned about the cyclical nature of stuff. Yeah, please. Like I mentioned before, like you know how a lot of this stuff, the the camaraderie and the boredom rings true. Uh, and I guess, like I said, you know, I was in combat arms, but all of us, uh, uh, you know, I was deployed to both Iraq and Afghanistan, and this one issue was always the same: the indirect fire, the rockets and mortars, and that's being a fabric. That is well. Be no any any anyone going into country for the first time. Those the instructions about ducking for cover are so ingrained, you know, because that was like kind of the one one equalizer. Whether where you are in in a in a shelter or on a computer or out in the field, like that the rockets or the mortars can always get you. And so, and I really appreciated that part. Uh, it's actually the first part before before that uh, moment, when the when the the new the fresh recruits all meet all do their first patrol with the uh, cat Kaczynski, you know, you know, and he does the thing where he he hears the mortar, but he knows it's far, but they don't because they haven't heard it before, so they all duck, duck down instinctively. But he's like, no, no, it's okay. Like, and and this is the thing you would think that he would make fun of them, and he kind of does slightly, but he says uh, he says. No, don't worry. That's happened to all of us, even me. Like, and yeah. he tells them, and then, he, then he instructs them to which one specifically you should listen for. And he says, you know, when I duck, you duck. But you, but even then, you beat me to the ground. Like, there's all this uh, love. I don't know. There's another word for yeah. it that, that he's imparting to these boys that he doesn't know. And they, and and they, even even when they all kind of understand that, and he, they're all f- for the meat grinder. Him taking this time being this human for them, it's a really powerful part. Well, I think that there's also a thing of, you know, too many modern war films, I think, get their get their jollies on doing that very Oliver Stone, like, 
war makes monsters of us all, man. And like have these scenes where uh, you mentioned like making fun of like have these scenes where like, oh, when the new guy's freaking out, everybody laughs at him. Right. And everybody's like, ah, you coward, except maybe like one friend sticks up for him. And in this, you have the the young soldiers experiencing, um, you know, what they call like shell shock or anything like that. And like screaming and freaking out in the bunker. And like I'm, I said it before, they're screaming like like slaughtered animals. And nobody's overly callous like the guys are used to it. But then even so, you know, they come over and there's the one guy crawl in the corner and they're trying to calm him down like that that the older guys that are there don't don't treat these young guys reactions with contempt but rather just like yeah this is part of it you know what i mean like that there's just this sense of yep yep we went through that yep i yeah i got it you know and the way that it all just comes around i mean even something like we talked about the the leg amputated you know when the when Franz, uh, right, Franz is his name? So the guy gets Franz's boots after he lost the leg, and he's, we get that great montage where he's happy and he's wearing the boots, and we get the close-up on the boots and him running into battle and him leaving battle happy with the boots, and then the close-up on the boots as he rises up out of the trench and the close-up stays there as the boots drop back down. And just the way that it, the, the way that this movie does so many things visually to kind of just convey a never ending nature to it. You know, the fact that it just these, even the boots don't get respite from the battlefield. I thought was so compelling. Yeah. Um, and Tom, you also mentioned the, 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 the post coital conversation, right? Yeah. Uh, And you mentioned like, Oh, they're showing as much as they could at the time. They could have done more. But I think that part of the reason it's done that way is intentional because up until that moment, we've seen no joy for any of these characters, right? Yep. And it would have been very easy to have that conversation with the two of them, I don't know, getting dressed or anything like that. Um, But instead, it chooses to just show light from a doorway as as though to tell us both as though to deny us the one we don't get to see happiness, right? We yeah. don't get to see that. It's denying us that so that we stay in this sort of pit of 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 horror. And at the same time, and maybe I'm overthinking it, but I just thought there was something beautiful about allowing him dignity by giving him that privacy. You know what I mean? Like of course it's a fictional character and all of that. But I just thought there was something about I, I, I don't want to say the scene was done tastefully, but I do think it was done almost respectfully. You know what I this, mean? I think that there was so, a choice. Yeah, I think yeah. it relates to the thing of about the uh, being the the pro humanism of it all. Because like so what happens is, you know, these women they're also, you know, famished because of the war. They're in dire straits like everyone else. So they they kind of have this agreement, basically like uh they have sex for, for the food. Mm-hmm. And like that's, you know, that's the transactional nature of what's happening. But even though we see that technically on the text, it's still what's happening is this emotional connection of humans because they're just happy to have a, you know, like they're having a good time with each other, just, you know, taking a break from this, from all the madness. Um, you know, like, like, and so like, 
you know, they're not, they're not the French who was, you know, like in a lot of yeah. films they have, like, you know, like, they're, they're, like, uh, I remember, was it, uh, uh, Fury? Um, yeah, I was just where, thinking of Fury. You no, know, which, which, again, which is, that's kind of Ayer's whole stick is like, you know, going to the darkest recesses of, of mankind, you know. But, you know, like, and so even in their, their play between the soldiers and a woman like that, that's, they try to do something similar, but he's, he and the film are just too kind of fixated on the darkness to kind of let that shine. But here, no, like here, it almost plays like, like you guys mentioned, like it's like a um, silent movie kind of comedy like that's happening. You know, them dressing up as some of them, they put on the women's gowns and into the into the room, and then they have they have this nice meal. Like, like so, even though, even though like this is this thing about survival, it's also this is. Uh, but you, you mentioned that they don't, we don't see, we only see horror, but I'm not quite, not quite sure. I think that we often there's lots of these small moments where it's they're allowed this this joy. In this, in this horror, and, I, and that's where like the humanity, uh, yeah. that was a part also where the uh, humanism comes into as well. I also want to talk about, I mean, some of the camera choices too that really strike me is, is I feel like Milestone in this movie keeps finding new ways to shoot death. Um, and I don't mean to say that in a tossed off way. I mean it more like, I think the problem with a lot of modern war films is they think that more is always better and they don't realize that after a certain amount of carnage, you can become desensitized, um, yeah. even in just a single viewing. Um, and I think that what's so interesting is he keeps finding new ways in the film to shock you. And I uh, not shock in like an exploitation way, but, you know, the, the shot using showing one death by showing just boots rising up and then boots falling down. And then another one where he's doing a tracking shot from right to left where we're following alongside a soldier and he's just always a little outrunning the camera until he's not. Yeah. Until he just falls back. And, and, and uh, most of the yeah. film is, you know, bloodless, really. And, you know, that, that could speak to the, the sensibilities of the era or, you know, the like I said, the, the Hays Code wasn't in effect really yet. But still, just, you know, that would, there was no need for any kind of uh, overt gore, and again, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how the text in the novel describes the wounds, stuff like that. I can only imagine they might be in more detail, but like that's not even for being a visual medium. That's not necessary. Like you said, they use these all these different these specific traditions and and techniques to convey that, rather than you know just blood and guts and stuff. It's really, really well, which I think is for, more effective. Except for one shot that haunts me still now. Because you just don't expect it. Something I texted Tom about. I was like, I, I uh, yeah. wait till you see this, which was, of course, you know, the the soldier grabbing onto the barbed wire, an explosion, and then you just see his hands remaining, mm-hmm. which I think is partly, you know, shocking because you don't expect it from a film of this time, but also because it's not lingered on. A lot yeah. of movies would linger on it. You know, I mean. Uh, you know, there's that infamous essay about the quote-unquote tracking shot in Capo or, or something like that where it's talking about how exploitative it is. And it's kind of a, to use the term, it's a blink-if-you-miss-it moment in a montage of, of of death. And I think that that makes it so much more striking that, that it's it's trying to give you the feeling, I think, of actually being in that moment uh, where 
you do just have to, it doesn't linger on it long enough to confirm what you saw, so you and your mind kind of have to go, did I just see that, whilst trying to process all the other noise and all the other sights around you, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, baby, it's that it's that silent film horror movie shit, man. You, got, um, you know, he he got that he got that straight from a from a soldier who lived through World War One. He's like, well, I'm putting that shit in the movie. <laughs> uh, let's let's talk about, of course. Um, I mean, we did touch on you know uh, Louis' character returning home, which I think is a great moment. And when he goes to the school, one thing I thought was so interesting. So I watched this. Um, my view, one of my viewings to take notes on this. I actually watched my father because he said he had never seen the film all the way through, and he wanted to watch it. And when we open on the school, when Lou Ayres is a student, uh, he made the comment of like, oh, yeah, these are all like 30-year-old high schoolers, right? And when you see it initially, it's easy to just think, well, those were the times, right? It's grease logic. But then when you get to this moment, you realize how intentional that was. You needed Lou Ayres and his classmates to be men in their, you know, to be played by men in their 20s and 30s because then for this scene you bring actual children into the classroom. Yep. And it gives yeah. you Lou Ayres' eyes because when they were in school they were men, right? But now he's back and even though they're the same age he was, they're children. I I, I recall the uh, moment that same moment in uh of all things Starship Troopers, which I'm sure, of course, being Verhoeven was very oh, yeah. intentional with the whole, like, you know, because here, you know, uh, the whole cast, you know, they're like, they're like young and the restless models, but this will be high school kids. Yeah. Then uh, once Rico becomes a sergeant and then he, then you see the actual children as the new recruits, it's really striking. Yeah. <laughs> you feel like that's the interesting thing about this movie is that this film does not get played much anymore. It doesn't get. You know, it, it, it's certainly not shown in, in uh, on TV all the time or anything like that. But every filmmaker who has made a massive war movie, anti-war movie, like this was the number one influence on Spielberg for Saving Private Ryan. Um, the scene with the barracks and that tracking shot down the barracks early on, Kubrick copies that for Full Metal Jacket. It was a huge influence on Dunkirk. And as you noted, clearly a huge influence on Starship Troopers. I think we should also, before we, you know, zoom out and Oscar's not, I think we should also note the ending, which was not the original ending planned. Uh, so much so that, uh, you know, the, the film ends with, with Paul reaching out for a butterfly and being shot. And that was inspired not because of the book, but it was inspired by an earlier scene showing a butterfly collection in Paul's home. Uh, but it was shot during the editing phase. So that's actually yep. Lewis Milestone's hand. Oh, wow. Yep. And the other thing of note, is that that final shot that's deeply upsetting um, of the soldiers marching off, each one looking back for a moment, superimposed over a graveyard. Uh, I believe the original studio released version had a score under it. Milestone wanted it to be silent. And so the version we get now has the silence there. But that final shot of just all of them marching basically to their graves, I think is just such a, a hell of a note to end the movie on. Oh yeah, that shit was fucking crazy. I could that that ending does you just you 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 just can't imagine it. It's again, it's the the weight of what we assume older movies are weighing down on us, and then fucking sucker punching us in the face of like Jesus Christ. Can you imagine someone making a movie like this today? 
Just this, just unrelentingly bleak. Like, God, I love it. Make my life feel better by making me realize I'm not there. <laughs> Fuck. Um, Jesus. Um, yes. There's one thing I would like to point Please. out. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the extras that worked on this movie, mm-hmm. yeah. Fred Zinneman, the man who'd go on to make one of my favorite movies, one of my favorite episodes of last season, High Noon. Uh, another movie that feels very uh, about, in its own way, very anti-war and very uh, kind of playing in a similar, uh, maybe a little more populist, but a little similarly cynical-ish sandbox. And, and if uh, we're going to talk yeah. cinnamon, you got to mention From Here to Eternity as well. Well, yes, uh, From Here to Eternity, yes. I, I also, yeah, definitely. But yeah, Fred Zinneman worked on this movie. There's also, you know, I mean, we can't get into all of it, but so many different fucking releases of this movie. Yeah. You know, there's The Silent, there's 152-minute original sound version. Uh, it was cut down to 147, then 145, and 133. And, you know, I mean, we saw the shortest version, 133 minutes. That shit's kicked my ass, so I, I can only imagine what an extra 20 minutes of absolute fucking soul-crushing misery would uh, make this movie feel like, so... Uh, thank you, God, for shortening this misery for me. Um, I, a couple things that are worth noting from the production side of things, uh, as Tom's bringing up the production. Worth noting that Lou Ayers, who stars in this film, as a result of working on this film, uh, became a pacifist. And in mm. fact, uh, served, originally I think he wanted to be a conscientious objector, and he served as a, uh, as a medic in World War II. Mm. Uh, which, his refusal to to go into combat, led to struggles in his career, but he later bounced back. He would get an Oscar nomination for the film Johnny Belinda in the 50s and become known to most of our parents and grandparents as Dr. Kildare in a series of films. Um, Worth noting, this movie did indeed get a sequel in 1937 called The Road Back, directed by James Whale. Uh, it's based on the novel's sequel and follows new characters, but is a spiritual sequel to All Quiet on the Western Front and is bad. Uh, it is the movie that made James Whale, Whale quit Hollywood because the studio was a nightmare. So, you know, thank you for that. We, we definitely needed less James Whale movies in our lives, but okay. And uh, last thing before we talk Oscars, at least for me, uh, when it premiered in Berlin on December 4th, 1930, uh, Nazi brown shirts under the command of Joseph Goebbels disrupted viewings by setting off stink bombs, throwing sneezing powder in the air, and releasing white mice in the theater, eventually escalating to attacking audience members it perceived to be Jewish and forcing projectors to shut down. They repeatedly, repeatedly yelled out, Juden film while doing this. I think what goes to the uh, the realism, the timeless realism of this movie is how many people um on this movie were uh, uh soldiers either in world war one or later in world war two um you know M- millstone served in the army during world war one uh the author eric marie remark was in the german army and he was actually wounded so, uh you know uh, uh raymond griffin was in the navy prior to world war one lewis wilhelm g pat collins were in the army during the war you know there's a lot of people uh, you know, George Cukor was a, a dialogue director on this. He was a World War One veteran, and then he'd go to World War Two to do all those films he he shot for the war effort. Uh, th- a lot of um, a lot of uh, 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 he Millstone really wanted this movie to be accurate. He really wanted to capture it, 
and uh, I feel like this is, this has got to be one of the earliest uh, examples of someone putting that much effort into realism in a movie, mm-hmm. uh, which I think, <laughs> as Alex said, it's it still feels right today, and uh, so all that work paid off, you know. Last thing on this, since you mentioned Milestone, um, Lewis Milestone was born in 1895. He lived until 1980. His final two films, his very last film was Mutiny on the Bounty with Marlon Brando. Brando wrestled control from him on that one. And prior to that was the Frank Sinatra Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, wow. Uh, Look he, at that. He also directed another World War I movie previously called Two Arabian Nights, which was nominated for the first ever Best Picture and won the first ever award for Best Director. Uh, he also wow. directed The Racket that same year and directed the 1939 adaptation of Of Mice and Men, which was nominated during that miracle year. Um, Vice, did you have anything else you wanted to add about the film before we uh, wrapped up talking Oscars? Yeah, just um, we we mentioned before the psychological nature of war and how we captured this stuff. And you know, just a uh, part of the horror of World War One and the Great War was the uh, the introduction of industry and mechanization heretofore never never seen, and how that changed revolutionized you know uh, the history of mankind. And so you know it's. Both the, because the war itself was the end came about partly to um technological, technological changes, but airplanes specifically in this case. So I thought it was really interesting, fitting that uh, poetic even that uh, at the end, cat is killed by an airstrike, not right necessarily a, a uh, mortar strike, but they're being hunted by planes, as this you mentioned. Um, and just uh, you know, this progress of humankind. So put to these devious ends is we still see today. We still see this going on. Um, you know, like, like that could easily, well, not, 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 not that they could remake this per se, but like, uh, you know, that that's now the drones or you know all the UAVs. Yeah, that's the, the changing of war is how it, how it is now. So yeah, again, like all this, all this stuff is uh, the unfortunate cyclical nature of war and our attachment to it. Um, but still, like like I said, um, like I, I guess my thing is that um, you guys mentioned you know how bleak this is, and um, I think that's that's true. But like using both the dialogue and the, those various visual techniques, I, well, for one, I think it's you know this is very much a Rosetta Stone. I think as you mentioned, the directors who who've taken directly from this, but I think uh, this is also worth seeing to kind of get that sense of the poetic visualization of of this of these emotions and also i think it's also it would be a good reminder i think for for filmmakers and storytellers even now that no matter what you're doing or what your story is about you cannot forget the most important element the human element you know even in these like you can have a story about tragedy for sure but wallowing in it it may not be the best option when you can also recognize the joy and the power of humanity too that's also that's worth pointing out because it's ultimately what we're fighting for not we're not it's not about the war against war it's about stopping war so that we might live live on prosperously and at least peacefully that is the goal not like (laughs) this is kind of ironic i guess you know like uh we're trapped in you know we're trapped in war and so there's always this struggle to end war, but like that kind of becomes the the goal itself in a weird way. 
But no, we have to remember it's about always everything is about the people. Each of us personally and collectively as human beings, we, can, we cannot lose sight of that for whatever it is we do in our endeavors onward. So yeah, definitely, uh, you know, <laughs> glad, glad you guys, and once again, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you guys shared this uh, experience with me because, you know, yeah, it's, I think it was so much worth it. So this was uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, one best picture at the third Academy Awards. The other nominees were The Big House, Disraeli, The Divorcee, and Love Parade. It was also nominated for Best Director, which it won, nominated for Best Writing, which it lost to The Big House, and nominated for Best Cinematography, which it lost to With Bird at the South Pole, which was the first documentary to win any Oscar and the only one to date to win cinematography. I point that out in part because two things. One, obviously, it, it wins Best Picture, which is the first Best Picture win for Universal. Does anybody know the next Best Picture win that Universal had? Um, I don't know. The Sting in 1973. Wow, that's a long time. <laughs> yeah, real rough run for old Universal there. Also, um, w obviously, the cinematography in All Quiet on the Western Front is incredible. And I, I question with Bird at the South Pole's win. I did think it was interesting, though, with Bird at South Pole, um, the documentary, has a title card, which I thought was really fitting for its year and really conveys what the attitude was toward war now in 1930 in the wake of the Great War, which is the title card reads, But war, once the hero's only field, now gives place to a grander campaign the conquest of the last mighty forces of nature. So in this film, which is about a man, you know, flying, um, right? I believe he's flying. Uh, Bird at South Pole. Maybe not. He's in South I, I watched this a while ago, but I did watch it. Uh, but I thought it was interesting that, it, that this, this title card basically says, well, now that war's done, <laughs> um, which is an interesting take. The only other thing I want to note of the Oscars, well, two things. One, uh, these Oscars were attended by none other than Will Hayes. Uh, who showed up to promote his Hayes Code and try and convince every studio to sign up because they had not signed on yet. Other thing of note... Um, <laughs> other thing of note uh, about those Oscars is you might have noticed, I said, All Quiet on Western Front, uh, Best Picture, Best Director, and nominations for Screenplay and Cinematography. Any category stand out to you guys is missing from that list. I'm acting, I presume, is that... Yes, despite, uh, I would argue, a really stirring performance from Lou Ayers and an incredible performance uh, from Louis Wolheim, who not only played the role of Cat, the, the mentor, but also died less than a year after the film's release, um, uh. that no nominations uh, for acting for this film. The award for Best Actor ends up going to George Arliss for the movie Disraeli. Fun fact about Disraeli, not available on any disc, not available streaming anywhere. The only way to watch it is to buy a VHS off eBay. You mean um, the kinds of people that jerk themselves off because a new uh, high-def 4K transfer of The Mangler was released aren't <laughs> banging down the doors of Arrow Video asking for <laughs> Disraeli to get a deluxe edition? I mean... I would just like to have not... Really just taken the Mangler to test for right now. I don't know why I picked the Mangler, but fuck it. The Mangler sucks. Well, <laughs> I hate to... Put that out there. 
I hate to break it to you, at least in my estimation, so does Disraeli. Um, was not a pleasant viewing. It's very weird because I'm looking at the nominees. So your nominees that year, George Arliss for Disraeli wins. Other nominees, Wallace Beery for The Big House. He's very good. Maurice Chevalier for The Big Pond and Love Parade as a combo. Ronald Coleman, Bulldog Drummond and The Condemned. Lawrence Tibbet for The Rogue Song. And also George Arliss again for a movie called The Green Goddess in which he plays the Raja. I have not seen George Arliss play the Raja in The Green Goddess. Guessing it doesn't hold up great um, just from the name. But it struck me that none of those performances uh, even got nominated for this film that ends up winning picture and director. And I, I do wonder how much of that has to do with the fact that there's a lot of subtlety to what Lou Ayers and Louis Wolheim are doing in this movie that I think makes those performances ring so like, play so well now that I wonder if audiences at the time in the early days of silent film maybe weren't getting. Well, to paraphrase Joe Spinell, when him and Spielberg saw that Spielberg wasn't nominated for best director for Jaws, uh, what one of the best pictures of the year wasn't, uh, didn't have any good acting in it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Fucking yeah. Oscars. Eat, a, eat, eat, eat an ass. Hey, but they did give it best picture. Uh, and I think that especially in this crowd of nominees, and I, I think the big house is pretty good. And Love Parade's kind of fun. I can tell you, like, it was just such a clear choice with this movie. I, I So it did win Best Picture. Props to that. All right, um, fine. They can get that one in their, yeah. you know, pro column. Uh, Vice, I want to thank you so much for joining us um, as you've become uh, our official uh, war correspondent of You're Missing Out, I guess. Um, <laughs> you know, for season three, uh, you know, you can let us know either, like, yeah, you know what? Let me grab that next war film. Or you can say, Jesus, I need a break. Anything else? <laughs> Both are fair responses. Oh, I mean, although to be fair, like, uh, it's having seen these classic films, just he's, it's, it's two for two being surprised, a present surprise, um, that I've enjoyed them so much and I've learned so much from them. So, you know, I mean, even, no reason not to keep it going. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, if, if you see, if you're looking at Battle of San Pietro and just go, Actually, never mind. Let me get Mary Pickford's poor little rich girl for a change. Like, you know, you're, you're allowed. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. You have so much uh, that you are doing now. Uh, so please let our folks know where they can find you and where they can hear you. All right. So the uh, big, biggest development over the past few months or a year is that I'm now part of a uh, ongoing um, weekly action podcast. It's called Action for Everyone. Uh, you can find it on Spotify and uh, and. Uh, wherever you find your podcasts. Um, it's myself, um, Mike Scott, um, and uh, Liam O'Donnell, who um, you might or may not know, is the, the director of the uh, Skylines uh, sequels of films, the space uh, space suit adventure things. <laughs> so yeah, it's a weekly thing. We just kind of, uh, every Sunday we talk to sh- shoot the shit about action film. And uh, we're trying to, you know, the goal is to just expand uh, both the audience, but also like the... Um, the general audience, I mean, of what action film is, because, you know, as we recognize more diverse voices and more diverse uh, viewpoints, we want to uh, we want to be part of that um, ongoing progress in the realm of action film. So, yeah, action for everyone um, is you can find me. Oh, wait, you can find us there on, on Twitter as well and on social media. And myself, as always, I'm on Twitter talking shit uh, at Vice Victus. <laughs> well, I'm a big, big fan of action for everyone here. Um I don't know when, what order these episodes are coming out in. So if it hasn't come out yet, spoilers. Uh, Mike Scott has also uh, been on our show this season. 
uh, talking great train robbery. Though when we recorded it, Action for Everyone didn't exist yet, so he didn't get a chance to plug that. So let's count that plug for both of y'all. And uh, and Liam, uh, you know, uh, thus far, uh, as of these recordings, is not on our show, but maybe someone's sending out a message soon, so we'll knock on some wood. We'll see what happens. Uh, we'll cut that if it ends up embarrassing to me. Uh, <laughs> uh, Vice, thank you so much for joining us. And everybody else, stick around, because we'll be right back with our picks for the National Film Registry. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfre Woodard, and Leonard Maltin, and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of each episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration, on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks. So, I was trying to think a lot of films uh, deal with, uh, you know, we, we talked about how many anti-war films there are and all that, but I do think about this movie, and particularly what's striking about this movie is the not just the horrors of war, but but about people coming back from war, right? And 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 All Quiet on the Western Front sort of lives in the shadow of the the Weimar Republic and the collapse of the Weimar Republic and and uh, all that surrounds it. And you know, there's a, a long tale to this film, even after the film's release, of kind of where these characters go. And I I was thinking about the American equivalent. And there's a number of them that deal with, you know, particularly Vietnam veterans and how they come back. But one that struck me um, is from a directors who are seeing kind of a resurgence now in, in acclaim after one of their films was selected for the Criterion Collection, um, which is the Hughes Brothers. Um, now, most people know the Hughes Brothers for Menace to Society, but but um, where that film can sometimes falter, I, I think that... Um, their 1995 film Dead Presidents only gets better with age. Um, it's based on, uh, much like All Quiet on the Western Front, based on uh, a book, uh, the experiences of Haywood Kirkland in his book Bloods, an oral history of the Vietnam War by black veterans. Um, I mean, it, it's it's a film that has now, its iconography has burned into the popular culture, particularly uh, because of the famous white face paint they wear before their uh, robberies. It's a fascinating portrait of not just what is, uh, you know, not just how America treats its soldiers when they come back, and particularly how much worse America treats uh, black soldiers coming back from war, but also the socioeconomic struggles and the radicalized political struggles that tie into that. Um, yeah, uh, Dead Presidents is a, is a hell of a film. It's a knockout uh, the Danny Elfman score, I think, is is still uh, fun to listen. To. Great soundtrack. Um, yeah, I I think that for its place in in popular culture and its iconography, uh, I know it was kind of dismissed a bit at its time, but I think people have come around, and there are a lot of people who recognize it as as perhaps the the greatest achievement of the Hughes brothers. So, uh, Dead Presidents should be in the National Film Registry. Okay, so with me, I kind of latched onto the idea of focusing on 
soldiers on the losing side of the war. Which led me to a war movie that I think is uh, essentially a masterpiece from a director that has directed, in my opinion, uh, quite a bunch of masterpieces, at least a handful, in my opinion. Um, but in, in, its, in a weird way, has seemingly been forgotten. Uh, I, just, I just loved everything about it. Uh, the way it shifts the perspective with, and manages to keep the humanity of these quote-unquote enemy combatants to show that they too are human, that they are dealing with their own issues of nationalism and propaganda and everything. And there's a certain uh, even stronger brainwashing, but there's still decent human men fighting in this war. My pick is uh, Letters from Iwo Jima, which is probably Clint's last masterpiece. Uh, he's made a, a few since that I've enjoyed quite a bit, but I don't think he's made a movie since that packs quite this kind of punch. Uh, it's a companion piece to Flags of Our Fathers, and in my opinion, it's much better than Flags of Our Fathers. And I think, you know, the critical reception was, uh, you know, people felt the same way. Um, uh, and, the, and the fact that it comes from Clint, not that I have the same ideas about Clint that some people do, that he's a right-wing maniac who hates everybody except white people, but, like, the fact that he made a movie, knowing how he makes movies, um, that is so steeply entrenched in the Japanese point of view, that he actually cast Japanese actors, um, that, you know, if you do any research on it, like, it, it was a big hit in Japan, and that the Japanese actually really connected with how authentic it was and how it treated the Japanese uh, culture and the people with with dignity and respect. Um, and I think it has its uh, in its own ways its connections to All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, and just in general, I think this movie, like I said, is a masterpiece. I think it needs more attention, and I think it should be uh, enshrined in the National Film Registry. For one, is the last masterpiece we're going to get from Clint. Like, I love you, buddy. You're going to keep making movies until you're dead, but this is that's the last masterpiece from you. And just for one that so rarely in this country takes the, uh, the point of view of the uh, the other and doesn't make them into animals or anything or show how bad they are, and it shows that there are two sides to every war, but there's all but every war is always fought by humans and humanity is what's you know the only thing that's shared really uh on both sides of a war so uh letters from Iwo Jima is my pick and uh see it if you haven't it's a fucking great movie Let's all go to the lobby 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 Thank you again to Vice Victus for joining us. Next week, we're exploring middle-class suburbia with Blank Check's Ben Hosley. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance... On the National Film Registry.